0: This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co host, Phil Goldberg. Uh, Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, uh, artist, Avadya Tantra, teacher, and founder of the Flowing Wakefulness Fellowship for over a decade, Igor Kufayr. And uh, he is currently in Mallorca. Phil is in Los Angeles, and I'm in Iowa. So, uh, again, through the miracle of uh, technology, we can communicate. Igor, thank you so very much for coming on today. You have an amazing, full and rich background, so we want to touch on as much of that as we can today, as time allows, but uh, I'll let Phil, Phil, thank you for taking the time. Well, thank
1: you both of you, I'm really delighted to be here, I'm actually thrilled because there is a lot of um, shared territory and, you know, it's also quite an occasion because, well. Hopefully it will transpire for the interview, but yes, it's going to
2: be with you both. Very good. Thank you, uh, Igor, for taking the time. I know it's uh, a different time zone there, so uh, we appreciate it. Um, fill our listeners in on your own background, your own spiritual background, how you came to the work you do, any significant experiences along the way, uh, If you and be brief, uh, all of that. But uh, give so us You asked him about eight background. questions,
0: so maybe uh, <laughs> how you started your spiritual path. Yeah, Right, well,
1: I mean, I hope the listeners will realize that I've done quite a few of this, sort of covering the ground, biographical interviews, uh, back in the days when I went public, as it were. And many of these interviews, or rather, I would say, uh, a good portion of them were focused on that almost linear progression from what has happened in my life from an early on and how it unfolds it and from you know all, all the ups and downs of that trajectory of the soul in the making and may, perhaps if you don't mind i'll i'll take a twist on it maybe I, you know like I'll give it another spin sure simply because there are plenty of material out there where richly painstakingly especially like for conscious tv the interview four or five years ago with Ian McLean the UK based uh, TV channel, we went through all this in my new detail of my upbringing and everything. And of course, I, I come from that block, which uh, historically was known as Soviet Union. I was born in Uzbekistan in Tashkent, which was a capital at the time, but it was at the time it was part of the Soviet Union. So I grew up. In, in that environment, in a very different social structure, as you can imagine. That was, well, I was born in 1966, so time flies, and um, I've lived in, in various places. I've, in my youth, I've studied in St. Petersburg, I've studied art at the Academy of Fine Arts, and kind of in no time almost, I found myself in London as a successful artist with what could be termed as an international career, with uh, enough supporters who would essentially um, support my art activity, you know, I was mainly um, doing paintings, and, and uh, but little did I know that uh, life has something else in store for me. Um, I'm making it in a very compact way, so that it's less linear. Mm-hmm. What happened is that there were some really uh, dramatic events in my life uh, quite early on as well. The more outstanding ones was having a mentor for a very short time when I was in my early teens and losing a mentor because he was actually killed in a, in a very violent way. And for a 13-year-old kid, this was one of the most kind of outstanding experiences at the time, which put me squarely with that kind of existential um, motive of, you know, it's not all all about life, you know, something else is going on here. Um, But somehow it propelled me not so much into spiritual work, I have to confess, but more with that verve and commitment to become an artist, because my mentor was a martial artist, uh, painter, was actually quite an accomplished musician also, he was a legendary person in every way. So that decision to become a painter, to become a professional artist, not just artists, you know, but like really artists, if you see what I mean, from the capital way. With that uh, also inclination to like I had always had this healthy interest in matters of what is it all about. So I read philosophy from a very early age, starting with the early Greeks and German existentialists. I mean, I mean I, I'm sure there are many, many, there are thousands or probably not millions of youth who grew up in exactly that way, reading certain poets, reading certain philosophers, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. existentialism uh, sometimes in the second world, War, uh, in, a, uh, in the second half of the 20th century became widespread so it wasn't just a domain of, of a few so obviously we all read Nietzsche, Camus and um, Schopenhauer early on Kierkegaard so all this was kind of paving the way into something that was lurking under the gra- beneath of all that which was primarily my art activity and, of course, um, art studies and you know, the personal life, right? The first love, the broken heart, you know, the marriage, the broken marriage. Then the second tragedy that marked sort of my awareness was the loss of uh, my child, a daughter, who died in a road accident when I was in London, in fact. And she was six years old. So this was my first encounter with this, what I would call, uh, profound experience of recognizing that there is something much greater than I have ever thought. And I'm not speaking about it in terms of the drama or the pain or the agony or what ensued for many, many months, years as that grieving. But the epiphany that, I, that if you will, um, encounter have brought about, the epiphany of realizing that, that there is this some, something much greater, not in a sense of when we contemplate about that, but something much greater in a sense of direct experience, almost, I, would, I could even put my hand on the body where that felt that rapturous experience from somewhere below my heart chakra down to the solar plexus where it felt as if I was speared, nailed, and at the same time I collapsed on the ground and you know on hearing that news and and it was this god, you you see what I mean? There was this Mm -hmm. like just that experience, god, like of course it wasn't Internal explanation, Perhaps it wasn't an external, I don't know, I don't even know in which language I pronounced that, because by by that time I was already uh, speaking three languages on a daily basis. So, but it doesn't mean that um, my entrance into spirituality was all um, spurred by this dramatic, for many people tragic, yes, they are tragic experiences. There was also, simultaneously with that, something quiet on the background and that extreme sensitivity to that what is called perception, that what essentially being an artist is impossible. That sense of almost being arrested in front of something which at the time would captivate a you know, sense of sight, mostly as a painter, you can imagine that. Um, through all the approaches certain sense perception is dominant for a certain uh, person. For the musician, probably the sound is the most dominant. For a visual artist, obviously, is, a, is a, an act of seeing, sight, beholding. So that quieter um, experience, or that quieter, uh, if, if you will, Unfoldment of almost being helpless in, 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 in the presence of that what would completely, completely capture, captivate and arrest my um, perceptual awareness which I think every artist has to have otherwise the whole affair of trying to convey and relate and translate something into form would not even be possible. So this, if you will, between these two, between the dramatic and tragic experiences, and something which is much more quieter, which is much more of uh, gentle in, in nature, but at the same time just as powerful, informed me, if you will, and informed the way that the late unfoldment took place, which quite frankly, took me by surprise, because I am not coming from that, um, well, I don't want to say uh, from that stock, but <laughs> forgive me for a lack of other uh, metaphor. I'm uh, not coming from that, if you will, category of, of, of a seeker or from that category of someone who is, you know, like, I read the stories. I read, of course, plenty of them. And now as a teacher, I work with a lot of people who come... To me, with various um, in various conditions, in various states, some are decades old meditators. Others have brushed with awakening. Others have been seekers for almost longer than I was alive.
0: Igor, yeah. if I could interrupt for a second, what, uh, sure. uh, how many? Uh, what year was it, or how many years ago was it that you first had that internal? Or I guess we categorize it as a uh, spirit of experience of awakening. And was it a single solitary uh, uh, experience, or is it an experience that came and then evolved in uh, over time?
1: Okay, I, I was I was anticipating. Hang on a second. This is exactly what I'm painting here, reading here, because it's not as linear as it is perhaps I spoke about it in the earlier years, mm-hmm. that's why I've asked you this permission to give it another stab at it, to, to take another spin, if you will, on this whole so-called story of awakening, because it can only be fully recognized for what it is when there was a due I would say profound uh, amount of Integration, and then things are seen in a very different light. And although I could say that there was this, perhaps several very precise in space-time moments, like the one I could easily refer at any time that I have experienced at the second block of the TMCD course. When I was which I attended in Uzbekistan already as a British citizen and back in my mid-30s, which was at the turn of the century. I have certainly if I were to write a spiritual autobiography, then I would have to write about that experience there. But what I wanted to point out here is that what I've realized that that realization this particular, whatever it may be called, right, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. brought about another interesting realization that the knowing of that was almost always there on the background even when I was a child, a teenager, but there was no reference point to it whatsoever, neither in my environment nor culturally, nor otherwise. So, this is why I wanted to speak in this. I wanted to take this as a chance to speak about it in a slightly different light, mm-hmm. in different terms. Because when I listened to some of these interviews back, and many, many people, you know, Rick Archer didn't, you know, we saw twice, and the first one was entirely about the, you know, the biographical details and how it all unfolded and what have you. The aforementioned Conscious TV, there were other radio and podcast interviews where I spoke about this at great length. But what struck me that there was always this kind of, uh, almost as if there was this unfoldment, development, and boom. It happened, and somehow something else is missing. I don't know. No, I don't. I'm not sure if I'm making myself clear. So maybe you can help me with some additional kind of. Uh,
0: well, well, let, let me let me let me ask there. When you said, uh, is it because there was not an intellectual kind of framework or understanding uh, for what you were experiencing that you could uh, uh, verbalize or, or or at least conceptualize even in your own mind. You had no context to put it within because you yeah. hadn't studied that. that. That's
1: exactly it. that exactly it. There was no framework whatsoever that, for example, when I had... When these more dramatic experiences took place, like the one I referred to at the TMCD course, which both of you know very well, what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in those in the audience, uh, not to lose them, it's, you know, it's an advanced meditator's course, which was devised by Maharishi Makesh Yogi and considered as one of the um, greatest methodology for that quickening, for that breakthrough. It was. Facilitated specifically to harness consciousness for it to experience this, right, the most sustained mm-hmm. higher states of consciousness uh, Rather than, than what the average TM meditators do on a daily basis. So it was like an advanced methodology mm-hmm. So, that Advanced methodology certainly delivered and But there were other experiences that informed in a different way that those experiences that did not have this dramatic uh, nature of uh, what initial phases of that transformation of consciousness were accompanied by, which was deeply linked to psychophysiological activity, to the, you know, to what was happening to my organism, to what was happening to my endocrine system. But those experiences later on were what I've realized is that this knowingness was always there on a the background, and mm-hmm. it was experienced very quietly. It was experienced as simply being in a state of connection, the I say, in a state of union with everything without knowing what that is. That's very interesting. And
2: and obviously, I want to transition to your work as a teacher. Um, at a certain point, you decided uh, it was a, your calling to um, um, help others evolve in their own in their spiritual paths. And in your uh, biography, in the biographical information about you online, it's a very interesting little. Um, um, not I wouldn't say tension, but interaction between you're paying uh, homage to uh, teachers who influenced you. You mentioned specifically uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, Swami Muktananda, neither of whom you knew in person, but mm-hmm. had uh, you feel a deep connection to. You you honor certain traditions. You mention uh, uh, having uh, learned a great deal from Advaita Vedanta from. Uh, Kashmir Shaivism and other forms of tantra uh, and other uh, lineages. and yet, and you're teaching uh, on your own and methods for essentially transcending tra- tradition and transcending lineage and transcending all the conceptual work that uh, um, uh, we think of in connection with those traditions. Can you speak a little bit about that? And, and the sort of integration of tradition and non-tradition sure. in your own work?
1: Sure. Well, perhaps the first part of where you building your question up <laughs> Sort of in layers. <laughs> the moment of, because it's also, this question has occurred, and many, many times I've been asked, when exactly did that happen and why? Mm. And these questions were asked with uh, fervent curiosity, sometimes with great appreciation and respect, there I say devotion. At other times, it was presented to me almost as a um, as a probing of, yeah. you know, you who know, are you to <laughs> Right. Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. Up and, you know, so, um, which to me are all legitimate. These mm-hmm. are very legitimate mm-hmm. questions. And I welcome these questions because these questions are important for myself. Because these questions are not something that... Somehow uh, brushed one day aside. I right. think that everyone who steps into the shoes would need to have a healthy amount of that, that constant degree of willingness to reevaluate. Are, are you still, you know, what are you doing here? Are you? Are you still holding the space? Are you? Uh, what is it? Is it, you know, is it being taken for granted? So, so to answer that first part is. I would be very honest that people started becoming very early on, like literally from the onset almost. I mean, I even remember when I came back to London from Uzbekistan, I was dripping with that, like, you the, know, the, to use that Buddhist term, the awakening was stinking, right? Like, the, <laughs> a stench of freshness, you know, the novelty and everything. Now, of course, I was dripping with bliss. I was like, I was walking around. Not knowing where am I touching the ground or not, it was like literally It was pretty intense, and immediately people begin to uh, come around and kind of like show curiosity, interest, and with some there were interesting cases of resonance. And, and of course, I had plenty of provocations. I called the provocations at the time. Um, I didn't know what to do, but it felt. Whenever someone would come and be a little bit more for, for, uh, forthright or more forward about, well, you know, like how about you, you know, I'm, I'll become your student, and you know, and there were cases where people simply just, <laughs> just they, will, they will just drop on their knees, believe it or not, they will just okay, take me as I am, and I felt like this is this is not what I really want, this is not what I'm here, and I'm still making sense of all this, and it took quite a few years, so then this slight pushing away, not so slight pushing away, was there, done consciously on my part, I'm very glad I didn't go into the teaching right away, as I can see, it happens a lot in today's, World in today's spirituality, I can see a lot of teachers who, when they speak about their awakening and when they refer to a certain certain biographical uh, dates that I only left to just uh, two years ago, it's like wow. So I've resisted it as much as I could, but I will be um, again, I want to use this as an opportunity to put the record straight. When in February, on February 5th, 2008, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi departed, left this world as it were, right, or left the body as often spoken in venerating terms. This was a kind of, if you will, this was a very emotional moment. For me, Though I've never met Maharishi physically. But the connection was so strong that it actually felt that that departure, and of course, I've witnessed, you can just imagine, you you remember very well when all this was transmitted, right? All these footages from India, when the TM movement was paying the last homage and tribute when Maharishi's body was cremated. So, all this was available, of course. And I watched this, uh, and it was accompanied by very powerful internal ways, and at that time I had a very, I would, what would be called a lucrative job, I was teaching VIP students uh, like back in Uzbekistan, and my wife was with me, um, Emma Adams, who was uh, asked to be renamed three years ago, and she's known um, so as Amrita.
0: Not sure where that's coming from, but
2: I'm not either.
1: No. That's not me.
0: let it go, I don't know. Is <laughs> it I, I I don't know how to decline it.
2: Uh, it's gone. Story. All right, it's gone.
0: Yeah. Sorry. So can you,
1: can you yeah. go. Yeah, sure. So I was having a pretty comfortable life. So, like, you, you know, you have to realize that it wasn't done because there was any kind of constraint from any, you know, how like, okay, okay, I've got to do something. And none of that. I had an amazing, well-paid job. In fact, the job was so well-paid, it lasted quite a few years when we were on the road, when I started teaching, and it was, there was no money in it at all. In fact, we were living on our savings because that was was the case. But the practicalities aside, this realization that there is nothing else we left to do was very clear. It was not at all uh, in in any way, if you will, like, oh, now I can do it. It it wasn't at all in any more... um, it was, it was not a mental process when I should do it when I should not do it it was just very clear to me mm-hmm. this is what I'm here for this is the only thing that really really makes my heart tick this is the only thing that really matters everything else is like quite frankly is an entourage to that everything else is seems like a at that point in time felt as a gradual preparation so in this case I could speak, In terms of that linearity of time, And sort of like everything was paving the way
2: to that moment. Igor, in the interest of time, because we don't have that much left, let's uh, tell us how you approach your teaching um, and uh, what people who come to your workshops uh, uh, tend to experience. What is the what? What are you bringing to your workshops? That you feel is of most value to people who are, you know, have experienced a lot of different teachers and a lot of different uh, kind of workshops and so forth.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I could say um, wholeheartedly that um, I feel very privileged, blessed, um, and I don't even know the degree of that uh, to what and how the work unfolded by itself. Because the way the work unfolded, I've started obviously in that uh, more classical format, right? In the spiritual guide, the teacher, whatever you the speaker holding mm-hmm. space, right? In the format of one gathering, as they used to be called satsangs, in one duality circles, um, to workshops, to weekends, right? To week long uh, programs. And somewhere, Around the time of um, 2013 into 2014, a very interesting thing happened, She was about five, six years ago. Uh, in fact, it was in California, in Mill Valley. Um, we were at right next to the Mount Town, in fact, on the way to the Mount Town in Mill Valley, in this uh, old retreat center which were not even retreat centers. Just like we hired it as a retreat center, and we've been holding retreats there um, like almost every half a year for a number of years. What happened is that suddenly, uh, in the very early uh, days of, of that week-long program, we call the immersions, I just felt that urge to... And get up and just walk between the meditators and participants in more like Muktananda style, rather than Maharishi Mahesh, yogi style. Right. right, exactly what I mean by that. Yes, I do. And but I didn't have peacock feathers with me. I didn't have anything. I just <laughs> and that lovely, very old and cherished shawl. In fact, it's shawl from Kashmir. It's, it's not, nothing fancy. It's just very beautiful, simple. grey woolen shawl I got ions ago ago, and it just happened to be with me and I just started using that shawl uh, just moving it around and of course there was when I say that there's a bit of a tongue in cheek I wasn't wasn't just moving it around uh, seeing what what will happen I knew exactly what will happen You may ask me, how do uh, do I know that? But but knowing what will happen was already there preceding my movements, my emotions, my actions. Mm. It's almost like that prior was already before I even jumped to do that. And it was not premeditated, not for a minute. When People ask me many times, did you plan it? How did you go about it? And I will be also honest, not every person who knew me at the time, and I had a lot of supporters in the early days, in California, again, a lot of, you know, veterans here, there, you know, people experienced as educators. Not everyone really welcomed that when they've learned what I did. Hmm. But that's beside the point. I understand that because the the attitude towards Shaktipat in, uh, I think, in Western culture in, in particular, maybe even in India itself, um, has been maybe touched by a lot of this uh, certain, I would say... Touched up or dark reputation that Tantra has in certain circles. And not just because the way it has been distorted. And I'm not talking about that side. I'm not talking about um, sex or yogical asanas and all those like retreats for couples to experience orgasm. No, no, no. I'm talking about the way the Tantra has this reputation of of that kind of dangerous element, mm-hmm. of that element of transmission which in non-duality circles, which was considered a no-no, and I knew that from the dialogues, from the from from the attitude held,
2: hmm.
1: but held back. It was a very organic and natural. But what, what happened was, of course, extraordinary to behold. And the room was, of course, filled immediately with spontaneous movements, yogic movements, kriyas. Pranayamas, mudras—you know—people starts to vibrate, exclaim, right? Sobbing. You, you, you've seen that TMC course. It's a classic unfold. So, and people can see uh, videos online
2: of uh, Muktananda uh, giving Shaktipat uh, if they don't under- if they haven't uh, been acquainted with it before.
1: Yes, exactly. Funny enough, I saw it post and I saw it afterwards. People in fact told me, "Like, look, you must watch this video." Mm-hmm. There are not that many videos, by the way. Muktananda, I know. I know. Astonished mm-hmm. how, like, we were almost uh, denied the access to it because it must have been such a regular. I mean, I was also um, fortunate to meet a lot of people who were in Montana, even. Um, four years my personal assistant she was with Muktananda for many many years in L.A. and later on in India
0: Mm. and
1: of course there was this deep visceral connection through people but what happened after going back to the room so where that propensity took me to simply uh, become the instrument because it felt like that in the ensuing of, of that, of these movements, the spontaneous humming over toning and spontaneous vocalization broke out. And this was astonishing for me to experience, because I've never, I was never prepared for that, ever. And these vocalizations, this, dare I say, angelic um, singing at the time, sometimes it's far from angelic, sometimes it's very, very opposite when the stresses and when this be, begin to be released from the system. But that overtoning, humming and vocalization has been the constant feature of absolutely all of my workshops, without exertion. Mm-hmm. I wanna just give you a little joke like a little joke here, like because it's actually quite you know quite telling when we came out of that retreat I mean everyone was like every, every everyone felt that we were all like in the presence of something which was beyond of, of, of anything and then um, my wife and I we were renting a place down in the little valley and so retreat was over and a few days after we were kind of like in the, in town and walked into the shop and in California people just talked to each other right it's not like in england <laughs> it's very easy to make connections and so the shop owner just talked to us and was like yeah and, you know my wife mentioned well we were here with the retreat my husband da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. and and then she mentioned about the vocalization and he go and he just goes oh yeah don't worry about it yeah it's very well known the mountain it's a holy site you know native americans they used to consider this a holy mountain you know, it sings, yeah, because it, it, you know, it has a tone of its own, it has a voice of its own. And I'm standing there in my heart, like, oops. Okay, so, right, so we were in the in a, in a spot, you see, <laughs> we were just in a special spot.
0: Uh, <laughs> Igor, we have to wrap it up in about uh, two, three Let's minutes. See. So if you could just yeah, take it from there. We have to do so a part two.
1: That, that, that wasn't the case. you know. <laughs> that sound is just going everywhere with us, <laughs> wherever we go. Yeah. That sound, that sound of, you know, we call it the sound of the new goddess, which is also going to be the name of my publishing house that we are about to start. So, there we tell go. Tell
2: us, if you could tell us uh, in, in, a, in a short uh, answer what the intent and purpose of the uh, work you do with your students when you're with them in person as opposed to publishing and online. What can people expect if they look into going to your workshops?
1: Well, they can expect whatever they really expect to experience for themselves. It's really a two-way process and I always advise people to set intentions. And people come for various reasons, very, very different reasons. In spiritual circles, I already gained certain reputation. Some of it is good, some of it is not that good. And this, <laughs> yeah, well, that, you know, goes, I, I guess, it goes with through.
2: territory.
1: Yes, exactly. Right. But one thing is that is certain to me is um, we never get more than we fast, and we never get less than we fast. It's, right. This is a mutual process.
0: But we'll have so, to do a. Yeah. We'll have to wrap it up, and we'll have to do a part two because there's much more to discuss. But thank you so very much for your time, Igor. Uh, and, and again, we'll have posted up all information on how one can uh, get a uh, plug into uh, his work and, and uh, where workshops are being held, and uh, any other information pertaining to, to uh, Igor's work. Thank you so very much for your time.
1: Thank you, thank, you. thank and, you. And
2: we should tell our listeners who are not seeing, if if they're just hearing this, uh, that Igor's second name is uh, spelled K-U-F-A-Y-E-V, uh, Igor Kufayev, and you uh, find it at uh, igorkufayev.com.
0: Yeah, and we'll have all that posted up. Great. Very good. Thank Hugo, you. So thank much. you. Continue good thank work.
1: To both of you, I really enjoyed it greatly. Keep up the good work.